0: In this episode, I host part two of a dialogue between Shinzen Young, meditation teacher and neuroscience research consultant, and Chelsea Fasano, a Columbia University neuroscience student. We get a front row seat for what Shinzen calls early science, as Chelsea consults him on her current research project, a review of the neuroscience literature that examines states of self-identification and non-dual awareness. In the course of this discussion, we contrast different paradigms of enlightenment, including the gating of attentional abilities, reducing self-referential activity, the neuroscience of clinging, top-down processing, and more. Chelsea shares her own meditation experiences, and Shinzen reveals how the world appears to him after a lifetime of meditation practice and science. So without further ado, Shinzen Young and Chelsea Fasano. Shinzen Young and Chelsea Fasano, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. In the first episode, we discussed the thorny problem of definitions and the importance of precise use of language. A deep dive into the word Tantra served to illustrate those points. Uh, But we did end on a cliffhanger. What are Chelsea's current theoretical frameworks in working with neuroscience and certain types of meditation and transpersonal experiences? We don't know, and that's what we're here to talk about. I've been very much looking forward to this part, too. I'm literally on the edge of my Zafu. So Chelsea, please, perhaps you could uh, begin by uh, laying out your thinking on this theoretical frameworks that you've been working on.
1: Right, so as a refresher from last episode, my general topic is concepts and experiences of the self and reality in neuroscience and in the Buddhist textual traditions. So I have developed a range of neurological theories about The kinds of activity I believe are leading up to experiences of what you Shenzhen call a special nothing. And that is what I'm interested in talking about today. Um, There's a great deal of research in in academia about attentional network activation and a reduction in what uh, is called default mode network activity. So self-referential thinking. But my question is, that essentially what is this What is this doing? What is gaining attention and decreasing self-referential mental activity leading towards? And there's less uh, writing on this topic. So this is what I wanted to research. Um, and I can tell the sort of arc of my thinking if you want Shinsen, but it's going to be a bit of a, a, a Soliloquy for a minute. <laughs>
2: um let me I've been taking notes on what you're saying. Let me feed back to you what I've heard so far. Um so uh you're interested in concepts and experiences. <clears throat> of self and reality um, from two perspectives, a neuroscience perspective, a uh, Buddhist tradition perspective. And then uh, the third perspective is how do those two stories relate? So there would be, three stories here Um, the stories the topics of the stories would be concepts and experiences of self and reality which of course concepts are one thing experiences are something else but they're not unrelated self could be a lot of things reality can be a lot of things I think we're going to hold those four words, concepts, experiences, self, and reality lightly Yes. for the current context. Yes. So holding those words very lightly, <clears throat> which would be something that we would do, say, here at the University of Arizona in the Center for Consciousness Studies, where we have <clears throat> people that would like to think of themselves as hard nosed scientists, but we would like to be able to use words like consciousness, experience, self and reality without having our feet held to the fire by the the true rigor of science. So yes, we're going to hold those. We're going to say it's okay to use those words because they're pretty undefined here, but we sort of have an idea of what we're talking about but we, we i think we want to be very sharp about the three stories yes agreed. what neuroscience tells us <clears throat> what the buddhist tradition tells us and the how to put those two stories together to make perhaps a chapter of a book or perhaps a whole book <clears throat> so Excuse me, that's what I have heard so far. Um, and <clears throat> this is cool. Now, what you also, so you've alluded to, a, you've sort of summarized in an interesting way. <clears throat> Sorry, it's a <clears throat> an arid environment here, <clears throat> uh, plus it's winter. <clears throat> so, uh, Uh, you talked about a little bit of an expansion contraction in the sense of gaining certain attentional abilities uh, versus reducing self-referential activation. Now let's start and you sort of summarized <clears throat> what the science field has said so far in terms of those two ideas which is an interesting way to summarize it have i uh, am i accurate so far in saying back to you what the story is
1: yes and let me just clarify a few points about this which i think are very acutely <clears throat> made points um so the reason why these concepts i intentionally left them uh broad or vague if you will is for the reasons of what we discussed on our last call, which is that um, I initially started wanting to basically understand states of perception of emptiness or self-dissolution. But as I started to inquire into what those states actually meant to various traditions, what I found is a very complex web of significance that varies both in between traditions, in between sects of Buddhism, in between areas of geography, and in between west and east, and the many complex ways in which concepts have been transmitted back and forth, and created new concepts which have influenced the old. Uh, yeah. so, it, it's yeah, yeah. It's, so it's
2: non-linear, right? So modern there, Buddhism influences modern traditional teachers big
1: time. Yes. Not a little bit. Yeah. So.
2: The scholar is part of the story here.
1: Exactly. So there's this continual (laughs) construction of definitions and concepts that is occurring. And so I essentially decided to leave it somewhat vague and head into new terrain, which, as you say, is a three-pronged approach. Um, I'm personally very inspired by David Chalmers, uh, Evan Thompson, and Francisco Varela in terms of a neurophenomenological approach, which I believe to actually be more scientific than simply studying hard data alone and assuming a reductionist viewpoint. I think including subjective experiences alongside of collecting objective data or considering how they relate to each other as an open-ended question is a more valid approach since we don't yet actually know the direction of causality. It hasn't been scientifically proven. Um, And so I think considering these three things together is the most scientific way of approaching any topic to do with consciousness and experiences. So you're absolutely right that all three are important to me in their relationship to each other. Um, I actually began becoming interested in this due to a somewhat interesting series of events in my own life. Um, Steve and I were actually having a conversation about lability between states of less self-identification or experiences of dissolution and experiences of self-identification.
2: Did you say
1: lability? Lability, yes. So, being able to, or having the skill set to be able to actually navigate between both viewpoints or simultaneously hold both viewpoints. And I was thinking deeply on this topic when I went to neuropsychology class. And there was a guest lecturer who was talking about uh, what they call body uh, dysphoria and this disorder where you, um, body integrity dysphoria, I'm sorry. And there's this disorder where you, due to lesions in the uh, motor cortex and other areas, people stop identifying with parts of their own body and they start ascribing ownership of parts of their body to another person. So often it's like a significant other or a doctor and they'll think and be convinced that their arm belongs to someone else. So in this moment, it started to really—I started this question started to emerge for me about what is the self, and how would you have a non-self neurologically? Because when you see when this becomes disordered, body ownership starts to become very disordered, in in a way that I don't think would be conceived of as a goal of spiritual practice or anyone, um, or anyone's preferred state of being. So that's where th- this all started for me. Is I started to think, well, what is the self neurologically? Um, and so I started looking at that, uh, which has some very interesting theories that I could could go into, unless you want to interject, Shenzhen.
2: Well, it's your meeting, so uh, be, give me enough information, but yeah. I'll also probably have some responses. Mm-hmm. But so far, this is very interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. So I came across a few sort of subsets of theories. The one that I find sort of most beautiful is by Antonio Damasio, who postulates that the self is essentially located in our assigning of significance to emotional and interoceptive realities. So he says that afferent activity uh, in both spinothalamic pathways and the vagus nerve going into the brain stem and subsequently thalamus and insula. And our sort of subjective affective salience, uh, the salience we ascribe to our interoceptive activity is the sort of seat of the self. However, if you look at cognitive neuroscience, you get quite a different uh, or slightly different take on the matter in which they've divided self-identification into two separate uh, categories, if you will one of which is the self-referential mental activity I previously mentioned in the default mode network primarily. But the other one is the, what they call self-specific processing versus self-related. And this has to do with the outlines of one's body and is located in different areas neurologically and has much less uh, research devoted to it. And, And they're calling it the minimal self. And this does have to do with Motor areas, uh, precentral cuneus, and um, and other areas that seem to sort of construct the sense of our body as a discrete entity outside of its environment. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. The
2: um, I'm going to. Ass- you said many areas, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned uh, a couple. Yep. Is the hypothalamus, one of the, uh, I'm sorry, is the.
1: the um, they're saying um, it on the right temporal parietal junction, uh, but that uh, it's a work of activities linking motor.
2: Temporal parietal, it's temporal, pra- right, they're saying. Right temporal parietal junction. Did you I hear that correctly? Right
1: temporal parietal junction and its neighboring regions. Involved in multiple okay. What I was
2: going to ask is the hippocampal involvement in
1: that paradigm. There are some studies talking about hippocampal involvement, as well as language processing areas in relation to the self. And, you know, ultimately, what I found when I started looking into this is there's just this really wide variety of ways that the self is constructed neurologically, which actually, for me, I get very excited when science lines up with subjective experience. And what I actually found uh, is that it really replicated what I saw in your book um, where you actually talk on 150, page 156 of your book, what is Mindful," uh, sorry, the science of mindfulness about the various different ways that you might analyze the experience of finiteness from the broadest to the narrowest. And it seems that there's actually a, way, a, a variety of ways, similarly that cognitive neuroscience is analyzing this topic, that it's it's a broad construction that has many different ways of being sliced essentially. Um, but I found it really interesting that cognitive neuroscience is essentially struggling with or has the same outlook that you do from a subjective standpoint about how there's the self-narrative, there's the body, and there's the sort of narrative going back through time as stored in the hippocampus. There's our concepts of ourself is stored in language processing centers. There's our affective relationship Uh, with our reality and the relationships we create uh, outside of us and that all of these sort of contribute in different ways to forming a self but what they actually found is that the sort of narrative ones they're being there's a body of work showing that even sort of medium-ish beginners uh, of beginners to medium uh, practitioners of meditation have a reduction in default mode network activity so it's kind of easy to sort of decrease this sort of self-narrative. What's much harder and that they're finding does not happen as much is decreasing identification with the body itself. And this they're only seeing in advanced practitioners that the body has somehow been constructed in our neurology to represent our self, our sense of agency, our sense of power, and a sense of continuity in, in an ever changing world, which relates to kind of what Steve said, where he's like, you always kind of assume that your body is there. That's the real truth, neurologically, is that we have this sort of cognitive illusion of continuity around which we, around, around the body and located in the body that seems to be very uh, hard to shift for people it, it, without long term practice. Um, and so I saw that in your work as well that there's these sort of layers of selfhood that become more porous through practice.
2: Yeah, I, I can
1: keep Great. going, but I I, I could keep going.
2: <laughs> no, this is I'm following. This is terrific. <clears throat> uh, mm-hmm. yes. It so some t, some models, as you know claim that people go through various stages, whereas others either make it more looping and branching uh, 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 topology, Um, but there are also these linear topologies. And then there's the one-point topology that says there's nowhere to go. You're already there. No journey, no one-dimensional. Uh, Path between points, you're already there. But a lot of traditional ones say you go from point A to B to C to D and then you're done. So I use a looping and branching, so it's algorithmic, but there are certainly general patterns that people go through. So, one, uh, so Teachers that emphasize what appears to be a linear model, which usually, if you ask them pointedly, they'll say, well, no, it's not really that. But then they're just used to using that. So their students end up in perhaps comparison city, because it sort of looks like the same thing you have in a company or in the military or in sexual mating hierarchies or dominance hierarchies. It's like, I got to get my black belt here. Right. Um, that can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending. Uh, wh- where it comes becomes intellectually a bad thing is when you seriously think that's exactly the way it works. And that it is possible to grade people. Um, and you have to study with a teacher who has been graded to be, which then could mean anyone that says anything else who could be incomparably deeper than your teacher who's just saying the thing that is supposedly the test of reality, right? So that can be problematic. So. If you want to think in terms of stages um, as opposed to you know reticulations um, then I do I don't have a test to prove you're liberated. I have a test to prove you're not liberated. Uh, I absolutely have a test to prove you're now I'm not saying, liberation is all there is to the path. I'm not saying the path is all there is to life. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying there is something called freedom from the limited identity of body and mind and self and world. Mm -hmm. There is that dimension Mm -hmm. to this practice. And I can tell you if you don't, I can prove you don't have it. Mm -hmm. By the it, I mean, so we're assuming there's an end, And it's called complete freedom from body-mind identification. And let's say that corresponds to what in the tradition is called being an arhat, just for hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I have no way of knowing if you're an arhat. Um, uh, But I do have a way to know if you're not an arhat. Mm -hmm. Uh, Have you transcended the body and mind? Mm -hmm. Uh, So we put you in a box, maintain you on life support. You don't see anything, you don't hear anything. You just feel being in the box. Your bowels and nutrition is all taken care of. You have your mind. And that's how you're going to spend the rest of your life. And if the rest of your life is 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, that's it. How does that seem to you? So basically Steve on his boat.
1: Huh? Say what? I said, so basically Steve on his boat right now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Steve on his boat?
1: He's in a little box all the time. (laughs) I'm, (laughs) I'm kidding.
2: Uh that's a big box. <laughs> I'm talking about a really little
1: box. Okay, no books um, allowed in the box for yeah, sure. Yeah.
2: And then we uh, if that's okay for you, then we're going to add various pain stimuli and uh, sounds and horrible sights for the duration. Is that okay? Uh, devise the most uh, fiendish torture you can imagine carried on for as long as you can possibly imagine. Do for real, I sort of think, you know what? I wouldn't like it, but yeah, yeah, that's OK. I I can. If it either means you're free or it doesn't, I'm going to take it to mean you're really free. You're ready for um, the uh, Pair of pliers and blowtorch and someone getting medieval on your ass—you're ready for that. You're going to love them. You're not going to look upon that as something impossible to deal with. Um, if you can't do that, you're not liberated. <laughs> I'm not claiming to be fully liberated, obviously. Um, so anyway why because it's body like you say it's not just a training that your mind has an understanding it has to go down to the cellular level you have to be able to just sit there for a week with nothing and be awake and deal with the consequences and that be easy as easy as it is to sit for five minutes. Um, And that has to go down into the body now, doesn't it? One way or another. The other thing I would say about body is, um, remember body entails mental image of body and perhaps also mental talk about body, but definitely image. If you use the sweeping technique and you get like complete dissolution of the body really really deep like everything is just like a french pointillist painting in terms of body sensation because you you know the ubakin tradition would very much agree with you they would say that's why we sweep the body cuz got to get down to that level um but they would say ignore mental images i would disagree because you can have profound dissolution of the body but still be subtly fixating a mental image uh, I'm sorry a profound dissolution of body sensation physical and emotional can all break up into shimmery uh, scintillating mist but you sorry you are holding you are holding a subliminal fixated mental image that you may not even be fully aware of, of the body, if that's also not breaking up into scintillating mist, you're not going to, quote, transcend the body. If you want to transcend time and space, you have to deal with the subtle mental images associated with, I'm here now. Say you're incarcerated, how do you know you're in prison? Besides the sight-sound touch of the prison, close your eyes, mod that out, you've got a mental picture of I'm here, and you've got body motion. You have to complete both of those to make to be able to leave a prison in consciousness on demand. If if you can't work with the images that convince that are coagulated and perhaps somewhat subliminal that then you'll always think i'm in this time i'm in this place so that's a few responses to what you said
1: right and that point about sensory stimuli becoming vibratory or transparent is actually the next place that i went in my thinking which is that okay well there are these Uh, areas neurologically or networks of areas, including the body, which ostensibly represent the self. And if you were to have a state of consciousness where most of your attention is basically just drawn away from those things, you would easily have the experience of, you know, quote unquote, losing yourself in something else, which a lot of people have who aren't meditators at all. But what's different about meditators is that they often report not that there is no activity of the self, either narrative or bodily, but that the activity is transparent, vibratory, and as you say, scintillating, that the qualities of the activity are different. So it's not that they have permanent you know, brain death in these neurological areas. They're ser- these activities continue. But the way the activity is framed changes. So then I started looking into this. This was my next area of inquiry. And what I found was a few papers, one by John Dunn that looks at the, um, what is the area? The precentral cuneus, I believe, as a sort of sub-hub of the DMN, which controls what we're calling clinging, posterior cingulate cortex. There's two papers on this, and they're saying that this- oh, I'm sorry, which is it? Post Posterior cingulate it- cortex, which I believe your colleague, Dr. Sanguinetti, works with as well.
2: Uh, you're saying that John's paper was about the PCC.
1: Yes. The PCC. Yes. That's
2: that's that's that is the area. We probably should credit. Um, Jed Brewer. Oh, Jed Brewer. That's right.
1: It's oh, Jed. This is, this is was, one of the the people actually. Jed Brewer, yeah. Catherine Garrison, and and Susan Whitfield Gabrielli, who who look at this. Um, That's right. So this is, we, Jay and I,
2: think of the PCC as Judd's area. It's like, yeah, he really, he's he's done this. And we're, we're, our, our results with ultrasound seem to very much align with his results and we use his stuff. So, but we're doing it with ultrasound, not with neurofeedback which is, uh, of course, a, a different intervention.
1: Right. Yes, yeah,
2: so PCC,
1: exactly. So Right, so it seems that basically it's not that self-activity, both subjectively and neurologically permanently ceases, but that it's reframed by the activity of clinging or not clinging to the activity as it arises, which is intuitively appealing as an idea, and there seems to be neurological research to support the idea um
2: can i interrupt for a second because we could fork several ways here
1: yeah
2: your notion of clinging Uh is the reciprocal or negative just depending on where you want to translate the math of what i call equanimity so equanimity is non clining And I would say that it is, if I had to, among concentration, clarity, and equanimity, choose only one, I would choose equanimity. I would say that's the primary. <clears throat> so this also corresponds to the Buddhist notion of letting go of craving and aversion. Um, whereas, perhaps, in some sense the concentration and clarity are related to the Buddhist notion of letting go of uh, ignorance or fundamental confusion. Uh, In any event, um, this then sounds like you're going to be asking the question scientifically, what is the clinging? And One way to think about it is we can analyze it as something that goes away when we suspend certain things in the brain physically. So, if we either through neurofeedback or through, say, low intensity focused ultrasound, we suspend something. A person might report um, it has reduced clinging, and they might report no-self, oneness, those kinds of things. And what I would suspect is that there are many, many areas in the brain where we can do that, where we can sort of, um, let's just say, down-regulate, in quotes, using that in a very loose way, quote, down-regulate, which (laughs) could simply mean interfere with in a certain way. Yeah. Okay. We like to use the word um, perturb. We perturb the network, but, but basically the result is we take something offline and we prove that we did that with imaging as best we can. And then we see what happens. I would guess that there are many possible targets for that general paradigm, Mm -hmm. not just the PCC. Have we found that it works for the PCC in the very small pilot studies we've done so far? Yes, with ultrasound, big time, big time. And it's anecdotal, but you know it when you see it, we're, we're seeing, I'm pretty confident we're seeing an effect. Mm-hmm. Um, but we've, we've also tried other areas and gotten similar effects.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Medial prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. down into the um, head of the caudate mm-hmm. nucleus, which is my baby. If that turns out to be important, I get credit for the, basal ganglia. For the basal ganglia. We're giving Judd, we, we get, <laughs> PC, PCC belongs to Judd, that's his territory. Uh, yes, now you mentioned, I guess there's others. But if it ever I turns out, if I. it ever turns out <laughs> that the basal ganglia was important, god damn it. I get scientific credit for that one.
1: <laughs> I love the basal ganglia, named after Shenton uh,
2: Yeah, yeah, Doctor Young's,
1: Doctor Young's protocol.
2: Uh, so, it could be a bunch of areas that then open up the question: Well, which ones, and in what combinations, and temporal, whatever's. What is it a linear? Is it uh, a mixed state quantum? Jesus. <laughs> However that might tend to mislead us into thinking that it's basically about turning stuff off. And that might not really be what it's basically about. It may basically, that may be a symptom of something more fundamental. So we don't want to get too oh my God, it's a linear combination of at the right time, this place, this place, this place, we take them offline and you and you get stream entry, say. Um, well, who knows, maybe so, but is that really what stream entry is? Right. That's, that's scientifically a very different question. So this is one of those cases where you say, I'm just saying. I'm just saying, I think you're onto something, I think we're onto something. I'm just saying, it looks like it's about turning off the right stuff to induce equanimity, but let's not get too fixated as to what that might represent at a deeper level.
1: Well, this is also where, so my, my thinking evolved in a series of steps and as, as this step happened, I also, as you are saying, sort of started to think about it more broadly um, as well, where I started to think, so, okay, what is, what is actually going on? If you were to, as you say, reduce viscosity, if you will, to allow sensory stimuli to flow more unimpededly and sort of quicker and with more clarity through the nervous system. I also think that there's, there's probably another way this could be achieved, which is just through highly focused, uh, highly focused, highly stable, highly concentrated attention to stimuli as it comes in so that the vibratory nature of the stimuli becomes subjectively apparent. Either way, what you would end up with is an experiential reality itself or the subjective sense of reality becomes kind of holy. Like, there, it's instead of stimuli being perceived as holes, it's, uh, it starts to be perceived as having spaces in between it, which you have a series of diagrams and what is mindfulness that illustrate this beautifully. And Dave Vago also has an incredible chart that kind of illustrates how essentially as you would either zoom in or zoom out on stimuli as they're appearing, you'd be able to see them as having spaces between them. So it's not necessarily the lack of clinging or equanimity that is the goal, it's the perception of the spaces. And so then I started to think, well, what is happening in these spaces? Like, what is happening that we're perceiving in the spaces, right? That became the question. Like, so if we reconfigure our relationship to incoming subjective reality, and we perceive it as being not as solid as we once did in a variety of ways, then we end up with this kind of result. And what I, sort of hypothesize based on some research that is, I think may be happening, is that for me, it started to come down to kind of fundamental aspects of how the nervous system works. And one of those is top-down versus bottom-up processing. As we are perceiving reality, there is bottom-up stimuli that's coming into the nervous system. But a huge amount of what we actually perceive that bottom-up stimuli to be is based on our preconceived understandings of how those stimuli can be thematized into objects and categories and predictive uh, scenarios. So what I think is happening, and there's some work showing that heuristics, a form of thematization decrease in meditation, is that this top-down activity, the normal relationship and sort of homeostasis between top-down and bottom-up that come together That top down activity is temporarily sort of suspended and bottom up activity is given prioritization to come and spontaneously appear at a sort of local level without being instantaneously thematized.
2: Uh, Could you repeat that again? I I missed a word. I don't know if every word is important. Uh, Not all all of it, just the, the
1: last phrase. That there is this possibility that bottom-up incoming data could be subjectively perceived preceding the thematization of the data, that we could develop the capacity to kind of prioritize your temporarily or more permanently stimuli as they initially appear without them being extrapolated into subject-object categories. And I think this could happen in a variety of ways neurologically, but I have a And I think there's some data to support that top-down processing is reconfigured in meditation, that we start to, that the basis for a sort of increase in non-conceptual reality could be a temporary prioritization of bottom-up incoming information into the system.
2: And is that the hypothesis you're interested in exploring?
1: There's no, then I went into how that could be happening in these five different ways.
2: Uh, so you thought five different ways for that to happen. I'm I'm just going to check on the clock to make sure, you know, we can cover what's important. Maybe we'll have to have another meeting.
1: Is this, is any of this interesting to you, Shinzai? I don't want to bore you with my with my long-winded thought process. No, Do
2: I look bored? <laughs> Do I look bored? I'm taking no. I mean, what? Well, I got four pages, five pages of notes already. <laughs> <laughs> science is never boring okay and early science if if there weren't early science there wouldn't be any mature science you and i are doing early science this this is the sound of smart people doing not science early science a lot of posture. yeah mm-hmm. most professional scientists are so siloed they've they don't they actually don't even think this is science i mean i've had very negative interactions with very famous scientists Mm -hmm. Uh, it's like you're not doing science it's like have you forgotten that science has a history Mm -hmm. what's wrong with that picture they can't see it. They don't know the fucking genetics. Pardon my French. That was one run. That,
0: it that it was it. one
2: run-in I had, and I'm not going to name names, but
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
2: the uh, <laughs> the um, Yeah. Genetics now? Holy crap. The public doesn't know. They know, but they don't know. They don't really know how mature it's become and what it's going to be. So yeah, geneticists, they they can laugh if they want at what we're trying to do, talking about experience and concepts and buddhism and neuros. but the thing is yeah you laugh now but i seem to remember that when these ideas were first proposed by darwin and others um there were a lot of objections and they did not have answers for anything it was very hypothetical mendel Um, It was early science, Copernicus was early science. Uh, Anyway, this is, we're doing early science here. This is what it looks like. This is what it sounds like. So no, it's not boring at all. Uh, uh, What I wanted to make sure I said was, um, just to translate it into my language, what you're calling um, sort of the uh, perception of the spaciousness, the fluidity, the quote perception, that comes under the category of what I call integration as a technical term within the unified mindfulness system. So, integration, I mean, what does it mean? I mean, in philosophy and yoga, I mean, whatever, but within unified mindfulness, integration refers to the endeavor of making the spaciousness, energy, nothingness, making that something that is two things, fulfilling for the practitioner and Functional
1: mm-hmm.
2: for the practitioner. Mm-hmm. So, experience of emptiness is not no self, flow, whatever you want to call it, it has a tendency to pretty radically increase a person's um, fulfillment and functionality. It carries an enormous potential for them. To do that as a human being. Um, But it only measures liberation. Um, It doesn't necessarily measure how the liberation is integrated into something that is fulfilling and appropriate as a human being. That's a whole other issue. So, I just wanted to mention that. And so far, and I sense that your story probably goes a few steps further. Um, And I'm all ears. Uh, uh, What's that expression in Chinese? Xi'ar gongting. It means uh, I wash out my ears and I listen respectfully. (laughs) Four characters in Chinese. Um, So I think there's maybe a few more steps, but just to halt at a moment, so far we've come to the idea that there might be various ways in which we could suspend something that would allow for the more raw processing or the Less derived or less processed. You use thematized, heuristicized. Those are interesting words. We can talk about that. I'm interested. But I'm gonna just say derived or processed
1: Mm -hmm.
2: or responded to or controlled. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because that's what the top does, all of the above, right? Yes. So So far, just so far, you've mostly spoken in a way that I've often heard spoken, and certainly a valid way, which is, well, what's the raw sense data? Can we get down to more and more of that? And that's a dimension. That is a dimension of it. In fact, what the Buddhists are going to, some Buddhists are going to claim is that's ground truth physical reality showing itself to the meditator. Mm -hmm. The reason it seems like vibrating atoms is it really is vibrating atoms. Uh, So one of the questions you're asking is. I mean, Shenzhen calls it expansion contraction, but that's just Yang Yin. That's Mm -hmm. just what everyone's been calling it. Life, death, you know but uh, a rising passing. Uh, But there's all of these other flavors of flow and spaciousness that they talk about. Um, Is, how does that relate to what a hard-nosed scientist would call our best picture of the so-called physical world. So we've got, you might say that the hard-nosed meditator gives you a good picture of the subjective world. (laughs) And the hard-nosed scientist gives you a good picture of the objective world. If they both hold their pictures lightly enough, they can communicate. But if the meditator is trying to get some use science to sell their product.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: No, that's not going to work. Yeah. But on the other hand, if the some scientists are actually not very scientific, they're mm-hmm. religious about science. It,
1: mm-hmm.
2: It's a, a form of, fundam- they they would never think of it, but they've made it a form of fundamentalism. They're close-minded to dialogue. Um, from the get-go. So that can be a problem on the scientist side. My thing is though, so it is a question. It's an interesting question. Why does all this talk about space and what have you sound so much like science, like physics, Mm -hmm. but here's something you've never heard before. No one's ever heard before, I think. I think I'm saying some words no human has ever said, but I might be wrong. Um, If you were to ask me as the result of two things, studying science and meditating my whole life, old school, at least partially old school, How does the ordinary world look to me? You know, they say first there's a mountain, then there is no mountain, then there's a mountain again. Would you like me to tell you what then there's a mountain again looks like to me?
1: Absolutely. Uh,
2: Yeah, but this is to me. I'm not saying any of my colleagues, ancient or contemporary. Uh, just saying to me, because I've read in biology, and it's an oh my God, the modern synthesis. I was talking about genetics, because that's writing on the modern synthesis of biology. Oh my God. We're just on the cusp of understanding what life is. Holy fuck. And if we understand what life is, that probably has some relevance to what experience, consciousness, God, spirit, because I, life, it's just there. Someone's gonna do for life what Newton did for physics or the whole world's gonna do it teams of people are going to do it. Even the U.S. military will pay for it, you know. Take a look at the DARPA math challenges. 23, I believe. To match the 23 of Hilbert. I could have this wrong. But basically, they're all the same challenge. Understand what life is. Understand what consciousness is from a rigorous rigorous, oh, and did I mention rigorous mathematical and physical perspective? Our Defense Department, the biggest employer in the world other than China itself, (laughs) um, will happily pay anyone to research those questions. Maybe therefore, they can see far enough to realize if you crack that, our mission's over, no more wars. Maybe I'm wishful thinking. But anyway, so I see the material world, not just the way a long-term meditator sees it, it's, informed by my knowledge of um, natural selection and artificial intelligence. So, um, did you ever watch a gorilla or a, a, another non-human great ape make a hammock. There's a YouTube video. I don't know what the species is. I, I can't remember, I didn't look carefully enough, but it was it was a, a large ape, probably a, a gorilla, maybe a chimp. I don't know. But it, it took a piece of cloth and it, it tied knots and it made a hammock. Now, I'm assuming a human showed it how to do that. I don't know. But basically, it does it exactly the way I would do it. When I just looked at the body, yeah, that's the way I'd make a hammock. Now you could say, well, maybe they learned from a human, but it's very natural. He, that gorilla knows how to do that. That gorilla's body knows how to do that. Now, make a robot that will tie a hammock like a human being that would look like a human doing it, like a human looks at it and thinks maybe that could be a human doing it. Maybe they can do that now, maybe they can't. But I know at one time that would have been considered rather difficult in AI, maybe it still is. But obviously, whatever lets us do that and whatever lets that gorilla do that, that is the result of millions And in fact, billions of years of evolution, starting from whatever preceded bacteria uh, or bacteria like things 2 billion years ago, presumably, as soon as the earth cooled enough, basically. So what you're actually looking at is 2 billion years of history. When you look at a gorilla or a human making a hammer, but you don't see 2 billion years of history. You see what needed to be learned by all those individuals over all that time. And it's very, very abstract and symbolic. The muscles just, they just sort of know what to do. Um, We don't, so, when I go about my, I'm looking at my kitchen now. When I go about my kitchen chores, I will sometimes tune into that chimpanzee. So I'll cut out all the human stuff, just tune into the chimpanzee and it's magic. It's spontaneity, or at least seems to be. But I also take it to be, so it's very simple. It's very mechanical on one hand, but I know that it's 2 billion years of history on the other hand, and the just-happeningness of its simplicity instantly connects to two billion years of richness that is invisible, but underlies it. That's what the motor circuit, the motor circuits taste like Darwin. And they also taste like nothing. They're a machine. The end result is a machine, a machine the likes of which we can't even begin with the most advanced AI, right? But under it is 2 billion years of nitrogen and carbon and oxygen and hydrogen and others learning about reality. Mm -hmm. That's in my motor circuits. What's in my see, hear, feel? The same thing. I see the mountain just like it was before. Well, no, no. I I see the mountain as nothing. And that nothing, no, it's not quite that. Ah, I see the mountain as nothing. It's just simultaneous expansion and contraction. So it's not a mountain. But, it, I can objectify it and see it as a something easily. But the something doesn't look like just that mountain. It looks like all the somethings that that something came from and will go to. That's all there. And so it seems to me that I'm looking at our entire evolution. In in other words, why is the sky blue? Well, we can answer that physically, but that's not what blue is. Blue makes no more sense, it's just convenience. Blue is what it took 2 billion years of evolution to figure out how to symbolize the physical situation of the sky. Two billion years of yes and no answers, survival, non-survival, life death, clear-cut expansion and contraction. And blue will tell us what we need to know about the sky. And blue will tell us what we need to know about another animal's scrotum. It's the same color, you know, like these primates that, you know, are blue on their face. It's obviously meant to signal something. Uh, Same blue, but it works for the sky. It It took a long time to figure out representations that work so well for us. But then if we solidify it and make assumptions about it that make it more than a representation that works very well for humans and other sentient creatures, then we run into trouble. So if you ask me, what does the mountain look like when I objectify it, it looks to me like Darwin. It's and you say, well, what about your colleagues from the past? Did any of them talk about this? Yeah, but they didn't know about Darwin. Mm-hmm. They were, uh, they lived a thousand years ago in China, for example. Um, here's what Master Lin Ji said. Well, oh, you have to understand the activity of the source, what I call the activity of the source, pure expansion contraction. Um, he calls the person, mm-hmm. complete opposite, turns around Buddhist vocabulary. And he uses the simple Chinese word, run. two legs and a torso, the person, two stroke character. That's a big, that's the true self, the formless self, absolute activity, absolute rest. Sometimes there's only the person and no scene. Sometimes there's only the scene and no person. Sometimes there's the scene, but not the person. And sometimes there's both the person and the scene. So he makes a fourfold. What does he mean by scene? Well, you might think he means the sight, sound, touch of the world, but he also means the image talk and emotion of the inner world as well. Anything that's objectified is the scene. The person is the non-objectified perspective. So he's saying, sometimes you can have just one or the other, you can have both or neither. So the common one is there's just the scene and not the person, meaning, the state of almost everyone, except maybe young children. Uh, Most adult human beings, it's like, there's the outer world, there's the inner world, that's the world, that's the scene. They're not aware of a formless world, a formless self in quotes. So there's just the scene and they live their life in the scene. Hopefully it's not, hopefully it's okay has a lot of potentials to be great, has more potentials to be not so great, maybe. Hopefully it's okay, but you lived in the scene. You never knew about, you never knew who you were, in a sense. I'm not making that philosophical claim. I'm just, you know, talking. So the other possibility is no scene. There's just the person. There's just simultaneous expansion, contraction, peppered by nothing whatsoever um, a liberated person might experience that a, you know, a certain ten percent of the, of the day is that way, but I mean, continuous, not like I'm there and then I'm, you know, but then there's the going in and out, and sometimes when you come out, it's just like before, you forget, in a sense, that who you really are, but not really, because you can't really, because, but a lot of the time it's both. You're aware of how the form is coming from and returning to the formless. And that's the formulation that Zen emphasizes a lot. It's actually not so much in the end about realizing true self or no, you know, It's about true non-dual awareness where the form and the formless are working together. Interestingly, that is also the Jewish formulation from Kabbalah of bitul and tikkun, the annihilation of the somethingness, bitul Hayesh, is the stated goal of Jewish meditation in all forms. Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, uh, secular. Bitul, they all talk about Bitul Hayesh, the annihilation of the somethingness. And then the Tikkun Olam, the mending of the world and the relationship of those two. Uh, that from Bitul comes Bri'ah. When, if you can annihilate the somethingness then you can actually see the moment-by-moment continuous creative activity of Hashem, of God. That's the Jewish formulation. Now, I don't advocate theism exactly. Um, It's got a lot of problems, but just between you and me, I think it has a place in science, okay? But let's not say it too loud, because...
1: We're not well, ready for that yet. I have an argument about why uh-huh. it's in science, but I can tell you that later. <laughs> you have what? I have an argument about why it's important, which is basically just that context informs practice, that context informs the moment, that our underpinnings, that the belief systems that underpin everything lend significance to everything, and you can't ignore those and be truly scientific. So I think from a scientific viewpoint, it makes sense to include people's conceptions of significance in science. Well,
2: that's true enough, but I was saying something more. Oh, okay. Tell me more. Yeah, well, way more. Like, don't tell anyone I said this, okay? But maybe you can't actually do science properly without including some notion of God. But don't let anyone know I ever said that. And I said maybe anyway. So don't hold me to it. I've been having dangerous thoughts recently. Piss off everyone. Uh, Since my whole life, I've bent over backwards to try to be the hardest of the hard-nosed in science because obviously I'm a freaking meditation teacher who listens to them in science not in the 50s i could tell you that which was formative for me (laughs) but anyway um uh, got a little off topic uh, but just wanted to um, uh, respond to uh, what you said that in the end it may not actually be so much about oh, they get the raw data and therefore we're getting closer in some ways to something good. It might be that, and I've heard it many times and that's why I'm trying to make this very explicit. It's, yeah, it's a valid, definitely a valid hypothesis and let's look into it. If I were to make a guess though, my guess would be, it's actually not that. It's something else. Mm -hmm. And here's what my guess would be. And I'm gonna say guess, Mm -hmm. not even a conjecture. Mm -hmm. Hypothesis means we're asking for funding. (laughs) So not a hypothesis. Uh, Let's call it a guess. (laughs) Um, Guess is, it's about the cooperation of bottom-up and top-down. You mentioned an interesting phrase. You related it to, I think, the history of science by talking about, what was it? Damn, hold it just a second. The homeost I think you actually used the word homeostasis.
1: That wasn't a very it's, scientific way of talking about it. It was, it yeah, was but a poetic. It, uh, a poetic uh, yeah, but it
2: voice. might be, but but you might be bang on, correct. Mm. In fact, it might be exactly an instance of homeostasis. Mm. Uh, in the Claude Bernard original ideas of what that you know meant the right balance, but what homeostasis might mean to the interaction of a network that goes down and a a network that crosses it going up, that is probably a vector or a tensor or some more esoteric mathematical object um, that takes into account levels which means it takes into account some sort of modular lattice structure. Um, Because if you look at a modular lattice, it's like, here's what's going down, here's what's coming up, here's how they're crossing. So um, it may actually have something to do with the efficient, flow of energy and information between what goes up and what comes down. That's my guess. Mm -hmm. And it may be that what we're getting with these interferences is the beginning of the picture of what we need to do to make a slight correction to Darwin were clearly something, actually the Christians are sort of right, there's something wrong. And the Jews had it too, in the Kabbalah, there's something wrong, something's broken. You have to, the world needs to be fixed somehow. Maybe what's been happening in the last few years in US politics, is a good example. Of, hey, there's, there's something wrong here, folks. In case you didn't notice, and I don't think it's because half of the country is bad guys and half of the country is good guys, and that's what's wrong. A little hard for me to buy that, but something's wrong. Um, so what's wrong? Well the breakdown in communication that comes between individuals when there's less than optimal communication within themselves, Mm. that would be an interesting hypothesis. Mm. And we could test that. Mm. Uh, And that would have world-changing significance Mm. if it was good science.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. just saying I can't believe I'm I feel so privileged to hear that incredibly poetic and moving uh, representation of your inner world it's it's really quite awe-inspiring and and wonderful and and it illustrates so much not just about your spiritual uh attainments, but really, I think your view of the majesty of, of nature, which is something I have been thinking about quite a lot in this project, I was envisioning this process of neural activity. It's funny, I was up at 4 a.m. doing this, and I, I started to, I'm going to get super poetic right now, but so forgive me all the scientists. That no, are no,
2: it's, yeah, but you see, we're allowed to do it. We just yeah. do the preamble. Hey, we did the preamble, folks, so- this ain't science. This is poetry yeah. now, poetry start, poetry end, back to fucking science.
1: Right. And so <laughs> as I was conceptualizing all this from Damasio and his ideas about the self to this contentless spaciousness, I started to get this internal image of this fountain of neurological activity coming from the body and introceptive capacities and visceral sensations and relational uh, significances through the body, up up through the spine, and it turning into a fountain. If you've ever seen neurological activity in the brain, how it ascends through the spinal cord, uh, the brain stem goes through subcortical areas and spills out into cortical areas through the midline centers of the hemispheres. It's just this beautiful fountain of activity. And I started to get this bi-directional fountain image in my mind of this fountain of activity coming from the body up to the brain and back, back down again. It's like this majestic symphony of uh, you know i i'm really sound like a science nerd right now but it's it is there's something as neil degrasse tyson has pointed out that's just the looking into the infinite of 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 the true nature of this natural world is for me often feels similar to the non conceptual realities of great masters it's just so complex and beautiful um, and and so what you say about the the communication of of upwards and downwards and some system where this flows is actually something I was having images of last night in my in my work and the beauty of that anyway. So thank Whoops. you for going there. I I feel so lucky to to have been privileged to hear
2: all this. And well, uh, believe me, the pleasure is all mine, and I'm. I'm just trying to see what time it is. How long have we been talking for?
0: It's 20 past, so we've been talking for an hour and 20 minutes.
2: Seriously. So I'm going to suggest that we um have a continuation cuz <laughs> we
1: Yeah, we should.
2: And this is going to be posted, correct Steve?
0: Yes. I'm assuming. Yes.
2: Hey, people people need to be a fly on the wall, to science, yeah. Uh, and this is this is these interactions are great because you have a different perspective, different lab, and people can sort of see. Oh, this is how they do it. Mm-hmm. So this is working, and let's reschedule in January for a uh, next session. We'll make a series. Fantastic. If that's a- if that's okay with
0: you, Steve. I mean, it's your store. Yeah, it's more than okay with me. Yeah. We've
1: taken over the Steam Games podcast. Susan and Chelsea. No, 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 no,
2: no. <laughs> that...
1: If
2: this I is not...
0: <laughs> this
2: is not an orchestrated uh
0: A coup. Cabal.
2: It's a coup. It's a, it's, it may be Kabbalah, but it is not a cabal. Okay, so... Um, I'm good, and uh,
0: to be continued then. Shinsen Young and Chelsea Vassano, thank you very much. <laughs>
1: Thanks, you. Oh, my God, I love Shinzen.
0: Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.